Good evening. Wow, it's great to see so many of you this evening as we think about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ together. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 21 to 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Let me pray for us one more time. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this evening, we recognize our condition as sinners, as beggars, as those in need of you. And I pray, Lord God, as we look at your word, you would display the glory and the brightness of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to glory in this cross. Show us your son in the words of scripture. May we hear his voice by your Holy Spirit's power. In your name, amen. So today, millions and millions of people around the world are observing what is called Good Friday as a religious holiday. And of course, you know that Good Friday revolves around the cross. When I was growing up in school, it was very common on Good Friday that we would eat hot cross buns. The symbol of the cross is ubiquitous in Christianity. Crosses adorn our buildings. We see crosses in our halls where we gather for worship, like here behind me, there's a cross. Crosses are now on our email signatures. They dangle from ears and around necks. But it seems more and more that the cross is fading and being eclipsed from teaching and worship in Christian churches. Most modern worship songs, more and more of the songs that you see people singing today, Christian worship songs, make no mention of the cross. We sing about the goodness of God and how good a father he is. We sing about the love of God and how that makes us feel. A lot of these songs center on our emotional experience, but make no mention of the cross. A lot of our prayers, even prayers in churches, don't focus on the cross, are not shaped by the cross. Instead, our prayers are all about us. And I'm sorry to say, most sermons today don't talk about the cross. Sermons talk about our feelings and how we can feel better, our emotional experiences and how we can experience blessing. Sermons talk about how we can experience a, a breakthrough or have some kind of experience with God, but very rarely speak of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in fact, I, I recently came across uh, one such teaching uh, concerning Good Friday and the story of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and the whole sermon was about how Good Friday represents our struggles, 
our trials, our darkness. But don't worry, Easter Sunday is coming. Your breakthrough will be here. More and more, Christians are forgetting today what the cross means and what the cross achieves. See, we have this growing fascination with ourselves, how things can be better for us, how we can enjoy blessing, how we can experience self-improvement. And all of this is because of a distorted view of God and of ourselves. We look at God not as our holy and righteous judge, but as this very kind, friendly Santa Claus who's going to give us good things. We look at ourselves not as wretched sinners who are condemned and in need of a rescue, but we look at ourselves as basically nice people who want to be nicer or want to be better. No wonder the story of Good Friday and Easter Sunday becomes all about us. Well, this evening, dear friends, we're going to look at what the Bible says about the cross. We're going to see in Romans 3 how Scripture answers the question of what the cross means and what the cross achieves. And as we look at this passage, we'll see that the cross is not only the heart and soul of our Christian faith, but it's the only hope for sinners like us, before a holy and righteous God. As John Stott famously said, there is no Christianity without the cross, and you do not understand Christ until you understand his cross. So we're going to look at Romans 3, 21 to 26, to better understand and glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This text was called by Martin Luther. Martin Luther said of this passage, he said, this is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle to the Romans and of the whole Bible. So let me read that for us. The chief point and central place of the whole Bible. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So as we look at this text, we're going to look at three results of the cross of Christ. We ask the question, what does the cross achieve? We're going to look at three results of the cross and why this is good news for guilty sinners like you and me. So first, justification. Justification. God declares us righteous. God declares us righteous. Notice throughout this passage the emphasis on the term righteousness. It appears seven times, although that not, might not be immediately apparent to you, seven times in this text. Righteousness is a legal term. It's a term that belongs in the sphere of the law court. It's a term that speaks about justice. In fact, the word I've just used, justification, 
It, it appears in our text, it says God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The words justice, justification, in the original language, uh, in the original Greek, they come from the same root as the word righteousness. So both words are essentially the same. They are different forms of the same word. And, and so if I'm looking at this text, would you look with me at the text? Let me show you the seven occurrences here. It says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God. You see that? The righteousness of God has been manifested. 22, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 24, of course 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous, we may say. Counted righteous. Right? Justified means to be counted righteous. Same word. Verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. Again, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness so that he might be righteous and the one who makes righteous, declares righteous, counts righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. This is speaking of the judge's declaration of someone as righteous, that someone can be counted right in the law court. It's a declaration vindicating the defendant, counting them as right. This righteousness that the passage is speaking of is first and foremost a righteousness from God. It's a righteousness from God. God is the divine judge. God takes the initiative. God, the divine judge, acts and makes a declaration to set us in the right. You see that in verses 21 and 22. Repeatedly, this is called the righteousness of God, verse 21. But now a righteousness, the righteousness from God has been revealed. Verse 22, this is the righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ. So first, this righteousness is from God. Second, this righteousness is revealed apart from the law, though the law and prophets bear witness to it, we are told in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. So in the Old Testament, if we read our Old Testaments, the law and the prophets is a way of speaking of the entire Old Testament. In the entire story of the Bible, it was borne witness that God would act to declare people right before him, that God would act to save sinners. But it wasn't entirely clear. It has now been revealed, we are told. It, it's, it's something new that God has done in history to set sinners in the right before him. And it is a right standing that sinners are given apart from the law, apart from keeping the law, apart from our own works. It's not something that can be earned. It's not something that we gain by our merit. We do not climb the ladder of good works in order to be declared righteous in God's law court. No, this is something new that God has done and it is given by faith. That's the third thing we want to see here about this righteousness. This righteousness is given by faith. We are counted righteous in God's sight by faith. Do you see that in verse 22? It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
Now again, English doesn't help us here. Maybe some of your languages make this clearer, but in the original Greek, faith and believe come from the same word. So it's like saying, this is the righteousness from God by believing in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God counts sinners as righteous by faith. Those who trust in what he has done. Those who trust in Jesus. And this is a gift. It's given freely. It's something we don't deserve. It's something we cannot earn. It's something that God gives to us out of his own goodness. Verse 24. We are justified, we are counted righteous by his grace as a gift. This is the outworking of divine grace to guilty sinners. That God gives us a right standing before him. He declares us righteous through nothing in us, through no merit in us, purely by trusting in him. And it's a gift. It's a gift that we can receive. And the question that we ought to ask ourselves here is, why? Why do we need this gift of righteousness? Why is this something that we cannot earn but must be given to us? Why do we need the divine judge himself to act and declare us righteous in his law court and give us this gift of a right standing? Well, that becomes clear in verse 23. Verse 23 says this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look at the logic of the passage that the Apostle Paul is laying out here. He says this righteousness of God, verse 22, is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's gift of righteousness is available to all without distinction. Sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, all of us. And we need it because all of us are sinners. We are sinners who fall short of God's intention for us. We fall short of the glory of God. We have failed. You see, un unless we understand the nature of our problem, we will not comprehend the need for a solution and the nature of that solution. Unless we understand who and what we are, we'll never know why we need God himself to intervene. To understand this, we must recognize the context of this passage. Where does this text appear in Romans? It comes after two and a half chapters of rigorous argumentation that the Apostle Paul makes, showing that all of us are sinners who stand condemned, guilty, accused, and without hope before our divine judge. The argument begins in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 where Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul shows us that the entire human race stands condemned. He begins by showing us the pagan world, the world of unbelief and belief in false gods. He shows us how human beings suppress the truth, though we know that God is great and almighty, though we know his majesty in creation, though we know his goodness, yet we suppress that truth. We exchange that truth. Paul shows us how this exchange takes place in the form of idolatry. He shows us the sin of sexual immorality 
all of the wickedness that we see in the world around us. And then Paul turns in chapter 2 to those who are Jews, those who are religious, those who have the Bible, and shows us you're no different. The Jew is no different from the Gentile. Those who have the law of God are no different from those who do not have the law of God because even those who have the law of God break that law. We sin against the law that we have and all of us are guilty. So that he concludes that argument in chapter 3 verses 9 and following saying this, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And you might hear all of that and say, yes, yes, amen. Yeah, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Oh, look at this wicked world around us. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But the problem, my dear friends, is that Paul is talking about you. He's talking about you and me. There is no fear of God before our eyes. Every mouth must be stopped and all of us are accountable to the living God. Every single one of us stands accused and guilty. And you know this, don't you? You know this in your heart. You know this deep down that you are accused. You think of yourself at work and for the way that you work or the things that you don't do at work, we're guilty. You think of your marriage and the way that you treat your spouse and how self-centered your heart often is. You stand guilty. You think of your parenting, parents who are here, and how you treat your children. You think of the ways that you fail them. You fail to love them and raise them in the fear of the Lord. So often, I fail. We're guilty. Children here, I want to speak to you. You know this. You know that you are guilty. You know the truth that you really are sinful and a sinner. You see, we come into this world sinful by nature with the corruption of Adam and Eve, the first human beings who sinned and rebelled against God, our first parents. We live lives of rebellion. Nobody teaches us how to do this. Nobody teaches a child how to be selfish, how to lie. We embrace sin in every way, shape, and form, and we deceive ourselves that we are somehow good. We deceive ourselves that, you know, some way or the other, we can make up for it, or we can hide it, or that we are pious and religious. But the truth is, all of us are guilty of idolatry because we think that the whole world revolves around us. You know this, don't you? You think about every time 
you look in the mirror. Every time you look at a group photo, whose face do you look for first? Just look at social media. Look at people's lives on social media. Who do you think their life revolves around? Think about every discussion that you have, how you always want to put yourself in the center. And if you and I could rewrite the story of this world, if we were left to ourselves, we would make it all about us. We worry about being COVID positive. The fact is that every one of us is sin positive. This virus has infiltrated every cell and fiber of our beings, and there is no human cure. And you see, there's a bigger problem than that. Our biggest problem is not just that we are sinners who have sinned, but the fact that we have sinned against God and the holy judge and creator of the universe is angry with us for our sin. Paul begins in Romans 1.18 by saying, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's you and me. His wrath is revealed against us, the wrath of the infinite, infinite, almighty creator of heaven and earth. He stands against us because of our sin. That's our condition. How hopeless, how helpless we are. And it's not unless we recognize our hopelessness, our helplessness, that we see that we need a divine rescue. As one of my friends once put it, your biggest problem is not just that you've done bad things against God. Your biggest problem is that apart from Christ, God is going to do bad things to you by punishing you righteously for your sin. The whole world is held accountable to God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. We are guilty in His sight. That's the context. But then we hear these marvelous words in verse 21. But now, but now, in our helplessness, in our condemnation, in our hopelessness, in our darkness, but now God acts to count us filthy, wretched, guilty sinners to declare us righteous in His holy sight. He grants to us the gift of a right standing before Him, of righteousness in Christ. Hallelujah. And so here, this is the doctrine of justification, that in Christ, God acts, the divine judge acts to declare us free from sin and to count us as righteous. He doesn't just pardon us for our sin, but he counts us as if we perfectly obeyed. How does he do this? He does this by counting Jesus, our representative, as sinful and punishing him on the cross, and then counting us as righteous by counting unto us the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived his life in perfect obedience to God's law, and that perfect obedience is counted to all who believe. What a glorious gift for guilty sinners. And so you and I know that every day, morning, noon, and night, we're aware of our own sin. We're aware, uh, we are aware of the ways that we fall short. And yet we know 
that in the sight of the divine judge, we are counted as righteous. What does the cross achieve? It provides a right standing for us in God's law court. We are free from the penalty of our sin, and we are counted righteous in the sight of God. But this raises a question. How does God release us from the penalty of our sins? You see, in a court of law, if you're innocent, fine, you're vindicated, you're declared righteous. But if you are guilty, there must be payment for the penalty of sin. In fact, the Bible takes it one step further. It doesn't just show us to be guilty defendants in a law court. It also shows us to be slaves in a marketplace. When we think of our sin and how we stand accused and condemned, we are in these chains of condemnation, slaves who need redemption. And that leads to our second image, the second result of what the cross achieves. First, we saw justification. God declares us righteous. Second, redemption. Redemption. God rescues us from slavery. Verses 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift, are counted righteous by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How does this justification, this declaration of righteousness take place? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, the word redemption, the term redemption, is a marketplace term. Some of you might be familiar, you know, you buy something online and then you redeem it. You go pick it up, collect it. It involves the purchase of something through payment of a price. Uh, redemption in the ancient world, as it related to slaves, involved the payment of a price to set the slave free. And what we're being told here is that we are freed from our, from our sins. Those who trust in Christ are freed from the penalty of our sin, from our slavery to guilt and condemnation by the payment of a price. And the price is the life of the Son of God himself. You see that right there? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself is our redemption. The Son of God is our Redeemer. He paid the price that we owed. Jesus paid it all. So that sinners like you and I could be free. He purchased our pardon. And this is true for all who come to this Redeemer in faith. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ this evening, He has freed you. If you're still living in the bondage of condemnation, I want to call you to come and trust in Jesus who paid the price for guilty sinners to be free. He paid the price that we could never pay, accomplished the redemption that we don't deserve and has freed us from the penalty of our sin. Again, what God has accomplished through the cross. But that raises yet another question. How can God... Almighty, the divine judge, the lawgiver himself, 
Do this for guilty sinners, set us free, and yet be just, be righteous in himself. The Old Testament itself tells us, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, he who justifies the guilty is an abomination. A judge who looks at someone guilty and declares them righteous, that's wrong. Proverbs 24, 24, whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. In the ancient world, during the reign of one Roman emperor, it was said, it is indeed bad to live under a prince with whom nothing is permitted, but much worse to live under one by whom everything is allowed. Now imagine, God forbid, this happens to you. You finish this service and you're leaving on your way home and uh, somebody gets in your way and uh, they beat you mercilessly and they rob you. You know, we know these things don't happen in Abu Dhabi, but they happen in some parts of the world, all right? They beat you, they rob you, and they leave you for dead, within an inch of death. And then you're hospitalized, and you're lying in your hospital bed in Burjil Hospital or whatever. And then you found out that the, the people who did this have been caught. The police say, we've caught them. And, uh, you know, this policeman comes to your hospital room and says, we caught the, the guys who did this, and I have good news for you. Cheer up. We've decided to let them go and set them free. Isn't that marvelous? What would you think of the law in a place like that? What would you think of a judge who does something like that? How can the God of the universe declare guilty sinners as righteous, set us free, without compromising his own justice and his righteousness as the divine judge? In fact, it's all the more startling when we think about whom we have offended. We have sinned against God himself. And if you sin against a ruler, a judge, a king, and you can escape scot-free, then we have to ask the question, what kind of a ruler, what kind of a judge, what kind of a king is that? Well, these are the questions that Paul seeks to answer next. You see, throughout the Old Testament, we see guilty, wretched sinners being pardoned by God, being forgiven. You think of men like David, this great king, but who committed adultery and even murder. In chapter 4, Paul mentions Abraham. Abraham sinned in many different ways. Again and again, we see sinners in the Old Testament, in the Bible, being excused, pardoned, forgiven by God. How could a divine, just judge do that? And we see that even today. We see that in this very room. Many of us who have sinned egregiously, who have lived lives of rebellion, or who have lived lives of self-righteousness, thinking that somehow just because we were born in a Christian family or because we've been religious, that, that you know, we have something that, to boast about before God. We've lived like that. How could God be merciful to us, count us righteous, and yet be righteous. How does the divine judge set us free while upholding his own standards of justice? We have to understand the force of this question. You see, our minds are sometimes confused and, and we are humanistic in our thinking. So for us, the big question often becomes, 
Oh, how can a good God send poor innocent people to hell and punish them? That's not the right question, my friend. If that's the question that comes into your mind, you're asking the wrong question. The right question is, how can a holy, righteous God forgive and count as righteous those who are wicked, vile, wretched, guilty, those who are sinners? How does this divine judge count them righteous? And you see, that leads us to the third result of Christ's work on the cross. What does the cross achieve? First, justification. God declares us righteous in his holy sight. Second, redemption. God pays the price to rescue us from slavery to condemnation. Third, propitiation. God saves us from his wrath. Propitiation. God saves us from his wrath. That's the key point in verses 25 and 26. Look again from verse 24. Let me read this. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And if you're one of those people who marks your Bibles, you should circle the word there in verse 25, circle the word propitiation. Propitiation sounds like a big fancy complex word, but it's the heart and soul of biblical Christianity, my friends. So we moved from the law court to the marketplace. We saw justification, which is a, a legal term, a term belonging to the law, law court. We saw redemption. That's a term belonging to the marketplace, the payment of a price to set slaves free. And now we move to the realm of the temple, of the temple, wherein we see this term, propitiation. Propitiation simply means an atoning sacrifice a substitutionary atoning sacrifice that turns away divine wrath. A substitutionary atoning sacrifice that turns away divine wrath. And the idea of propitiation is very common in many different religions. Even in the world today, it was very common in the ancient world, in, in pagan religion. It's common in the world today as well in certain religions. But the biblical concept of propitiation is utterly different from every other world religion. You see, in those religions, in pagan religion, pagan propitiation involves human beings trying to do something to offer some kind of sacrifice to turn away the anger of some kind of deity and make that deity happy, to appease that deity so that they don't curse you or cause some kind of difficulty in your life. This is very common. I know in India, where I'm from, uh, you know, some of my Hindu friends, we've talked about this, and, and, and they bring something to the God, to the deity, so that the deity would be happy and bless them. Well, in the Bible, it's completely different. In the Bible, we don't see human beings trying to do anything to manipulate the almighty God of heaven and earth. 
He cannot be manipulated by us. There is nothing we can offer. All we have is our sin. And he is righteous in his wrath. He's not some capricious uh, little fake God with whom we can do this or that to try and turn him one way or the other. No, when the Bible speaks of propitiation, when we see the word propitiation here in Romans chapter 3, it speaks of God propitiating his own wrath. God takes the initiative. God is the one who acts. God is the one who provides the sacrifice that turns his wrath away from us. Do you see that in verse 25? God, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So friends, God is, ju- is completely just because he doesn't leave our sins unpunished. He doesn't simply wipe, wipe the slate clean. He doesn't sweep our sins under the rug. No, he demonstrates his righteousness. This was to show God's righteousness. He demonstrates his righteousness by punishing our sins rightfully. And he punishes our sins in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. The cross is God's plan. God orchestrates it. God is the one who executes it. It is his plan to save sinners from his own righteous wrath and justice by punishing our sins in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, we have sinned against an infinite God, which makes our sin infinite and infinitely deserving of punishment, eternal punishment. Sin against an infinite God demands an infinite price. And this infinite price is paid in the person of God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is fully God. He is God the Son from all eternity. He is the one who radiates the glory of God in himself. And this divine Son, God eternal, from all eternity God, took on human flesh, became fully man, So that in Jesus Christ we see one who is fully God and fully man in one person. He is fully God and therefore he can pay the infinite price for our sins. And he is fully man, therefore he can be our perfect representative and our substitute. A substitute for guilty sinners like you and I. And so at the cross... God saves us from his own sword, from his own judgment and wrath. As Pastor Wiley often used to say, at the cross, God saves us from God. And by the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect substitutionary sacrifice, we receive mercy. God propitiates his own wrath And his wrath is turned away so that we might receive mercy. Christ absorbs the wrath of God for all who would trust in him. That they might receive God's grace. Mercy overflows for guilty, wretched sinners like you and I. And so how do we receive this mercy? How do we respond to what God has done for us in Christ? I'll pull you back to verse 22. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ 
for all who believe. The righteousness of God through believing in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so friend, if you're here this evening and you recognize yourself as trapped in sin, you see, we cannot receive this righteousness unless we recognize our own condemnation. And so if you're here and you have never trusted Christ, never truly trusted Christ, I'm not, I'm not asking whether, you, whether or not you call yourself a Christian, because a lot of people call themselves Christians, a lot of people go to church, a lot of people do a lot of religious things, but they don't have this righteousness. And that might be you this evening. If you're here and the cross of Christ is not the center, the very center of your life and heart, if you've never been gripped by what Jesus has truly done to save you from sin, if that's you this evening, and you recognize yourself to be a guilty, helpless, hopeless sinner, I want to call you to turn away from your sin and to come in faith, to believe in this Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross to save sinners, that we might become righteous in God's sight. There is no other way, dear friend. There is no other hope. You cannot earn this. You cannot do whatever works you're trying to do to count yourself righteous in God's sight. It is a gift that can only be received. That your guilt would be paid for and that you would receive pardon and a standing of righteousness. And without that, there is no hope. Because you see, God is the divine judge. And one day, you and I will stand before him in judgment. You can't escape it. You can't avoid it. He is the judge of all men. And in that day, our only hope, your only hope to be free from eternal punishment and condemnation will be this gift of righteousness that is given through faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to call you this evening to repent, turn away from your sin, and trust, trust in Jesus. Just consecrate your heart, your life to Him. Lean on Him. Give yourself to Him, knowing that He is your only hope. Embrace His redemptive love. As one theologian said, do you want to see the greatest evidence of the love of God? Go to the cross. Do you want to see the greatest evidence of the justice of God? Go to the cross. Because at the cross, wrath and mercy meet. Holiness and peace kiss each other. Friends, children, brothers and sisters, I bid you this evening once again, come, come to the cross of Christ. Believe, believe, stake your life upon the cross of Christ. Rejoice, let us rejoice in the cross of Christ. And let us proclaim that every one of us who has trusted in this Jesus, proclaim the cross of Christ as the only hope for sinners in a fallen world. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the great and glorious work that you have accomplished on the cross. And we pray that we would come singing and saying as the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. In Jesus' name, amen.